In my sermon today, I'm going to change change up my order a little bit. Normally, we do the reading first. Because um, in a church setting, uh, we would normally have others do the reading, uh, not me. Um, something that I actually hope to, to get to at some point soon, but I digress. But this week, uh, as we continue along in the narrative lectionary for 2020, which is a, a four-year uh, lectionary, meaning lectionary being the, the, the a guide to readings so that you cover the entire Bible um, in the church, and the narrative lectionary being uh, a lectionary based on the stories of the Bible, starting in Genesis and moving all the way through uh, the Bible every year, although each year picking up a different set of stories to focus on. As we continue, this week's reading is from Jonah. And I was actually a little frustrated with the reading. And the reason is that Jonah is very is a very short book. It's only four chapters. Uh, it's it's one of the one of the minor prophets, the the section of the Bible it comes from. And the the reading, which it makes sense because they you want to shorten it for, for reading in a church service is basically two of those four chapters, but it leaves out what I think is maybe the the most important piece (laughs) of Jonah. And so instead, um, we're going to read all of Jonah because it's only four chapters anyway. But um, I'm going to read it later. Uh, I would normally read it first, but I'm going to read it later. But first, as I always do, let me start with a story. So... I think it would be um, irresponsible of me not to bring attention to the fact that this service is the first service after the U.S. presidential election. And I wonder, since this is a four-year rotation, if they purposefully put Jonah on the first Sunday after the U.S. presidential election every every four years, <laughs> because it's spot on. Um, but the last four years have been really interesting for me. You know, I moved to Japan almost exactly three years ago. And I remember, uh, I remember very vividly the election of 2016 and how divided the country was and how all the people in my circle believed that one person would win and then somebody else won instead. And we were... We were all surprised by it. I remember the conversations I had with people afterwards about the nature of the person who had become president and their moral compass. And I remember people, people's various reasons for having uh, voted for President Trump. And I did a lot of talking with people and trying to understand. I mean, I don't mean... At a, at a high level, I mean, really trying to understand what I had obviously missed and many people had missed about uh, the, con- the concerns and uh, interests of a large group of Americans. Uh, and certainly a large percentage of my family, um, my extended family, voted for Trump um, in, in the last election. So I, I spoke to people and talked to people and tried to figure out what was going on. And, but what, what really got me, you know, early in the early days, I thought, well, you know, let's see. I mean, th- there are serious concerns that people have that they think that Trump's going to be able to, to um, 
to address as president. And so let's let's see where it goes. Um, hopefully it won't go into the uh, the dark places that many of my of my friends and um, and family of choice um, were worried about. So I watched and at the time I was doing a lot of travel um, for for work. And so I, you know, I, I was traveling to New York, I was traveling to, to um, San Francisco, I was I was traveling um, uh, to other places in the US at the time, not much overseas. And, and things began to get more and more divisive. The rhetoric became more and more divisive. And today I'm not so interested in the politics of, of President Trump and the, the, his party. What I want to talk about is the rhetoric. Because what I found so hurtful in all those times was this us versus them mentality that was um, President Trump's kind of way of, of interacting with his, uh, his followers. He, he, he would build up these walls between people he would he would heighten the divisiveness instead of trying to remove it and that really worried me and that's part of the reason why my family decided to look over overseas i mean this job came along that that was perfect for me just kind of out of nowhere and that was great but i would be lying if i said that part of the reason wasn't because i was concerned about the political atmosphere the the divisiveness between various political groups in the us and over the years, it got worse and worse. And then, you know, we heard things. The left wing is our enemy. The press is the enemy of the people. The news is fake. Other countries are horrible places. This very kind of patriotic, nationalistic rhetoric. And then this week, we had an election again. And um, it was very, very close ridiculously close in fact uh, certainly the closest election that i can remember i mean my, my first election was 2000 but even in 2000 i don't think it was this close um, although maybe it was and <laughs> i just don't remember and yesterday now president-elect biden gave a speech and in the speech um he said some things that really resonated with me. And the, the most important one he said was that those with whom we disagree are not our enemies. That we are all Americans in this context, because he's speaking to the American people. I realize that that our church has an international context, but in this context, and that we need to work together for the common good. And we need to realize that you know, with an election that was so close, there's a large group of people who are disappointed by um, by who has won the election, and though that people also needs to be heard and needs to be uh, in, invited in to the process of healing the nation as we go forward. And Biden, who I believe is a very faith faithful Christian, really shows his discipleship in these words i think because so much in the in the bible talks about breaking down the walls between us and them and building a bridge and working together so with that 
context in our minds. Let us turn to uh, to Jonah. And I apologize because this is going to be long. <laughs> I mean, not not ridiculously long. It's only four chapters, but it's going to be long compared to most to most of the readings we have. Um, but that's how it goes. The Lord's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their evil has come to my attention. So Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish, away from the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, so that there was a great storm on the sea. The ship looked like it might be broken to pieces. The sailors were terrified, and each one cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to make it lighter. Now Jonah had gone down into the hold of the vessel to lie down, and was deep in sleep. The ship's officer came and said to him, How can you possibly be sleeping so deeply? Get up! Call on your God! Perhaps the God will give some thought to us so that we won't perish. Meanwhile, the sailors said to each other, Come on, let's cast lots so that we might learn who is to blame for this evil that's happening to us. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they said to him, Tell us, Since you're the cause of this evil happening to us, what do you do, and where are you from? What's your country, and of what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were terrified, and said to him, What have you done? For the men knew that Jonah was fleeing from the Lord, because he had told them. They said to him, what will, what will we do about you so that the sea will become calm around us? For the sea was continuing to rage. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will be calm around you. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. The men ro- rode to reach dry land but they couldn't manage it because the sea continued to rage against them. So they called on the Lord, saying, Please, Lord, don't let us perish on account of this man's life, and don't blame us for innocent blood. You are the Lord. Whatever you want, you can do. Then they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. The men worshipped the Lord with a profound reverence. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made solemn promises. Meanwhile, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. From the belly of the underworld I cried out for help. You have heard my voice. You had cast me into the depths In the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounds me. All your strong waves and rushing water passed over me. So I said, I have been driven away from your sight, 
will I ever look on your holy temple? Waters have grasped me to the point of death. The deep surrounds me. Seaweed is wrapped around my head at the base of the undersea mountains. I have sunk down to the underworld. Its bars held me with no end in sight. When my endurance was weakening, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those deceived by worthless things lose their chance for mercy. But me, I will offer a sacrifice to you with a voice of thanks. That which I have promised, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. The Lord's word came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and declare against it the proclamation that I am commanding you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh, according to the Lord's word. Now Nineveh was indeed an enormous city, a three days walk across. Jonah started into the city, walking one day, and he cried out, Just forty days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on mourning clothes, from the greatest of them to the least significant. When word of it reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, stripped himself of his robe, covered himself with mourning clothes, and sat in ashes. Then he announced, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his officials, neither human nor animal, cattle nor flock, will taste anything, no grazing and no drinking water. Let humans and animals alike put on mourning clothes, and let them call upon God forcefully. And let all persons stop their evil behavior and the violence that's under their control. He thought, who knows? God may see this and turn from his wrath, so that we might not perish. God saw what they were doing, that they had ceased their evil behavior. So God stopped planning to destroy them, and he didn't do it. But Jonah thought this was utterly wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Come on, Lord! Wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? This is why I fled the Tarshish earlier. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love and willing not to destroy. At this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me, because it would be better for me to die than to live." The Lord responded, Is your anger a good thing? But Jonah went out from the city and sat down east of the city. There he made himself a hut and sat underneath it in the shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a shrub, and it grew up over Jonah, providing shade for his head and saving him from his misery. Jonah was very happy about the shrub. But God provided a worm the next day at dawn, and it attacked the shrub so that it died. Then, as the sun rose, God provided a dry east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. He begged that he might die, saying, It's better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, Is your anger about the shrub a good thing? And Jonah said, Yes, my anger is good, 
even to the point of death. But the Lord said, You pitied the shrub, for which you didn't work, and which you didn't raise. It grew in a night, and it perished in a night. Yet for my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? That ends the reading. <laughs> that is the entirety of the book of Jonah. <laughs> I find Jonah to be a very interesting book. Its text was probably written during the Persian period of Jewish history, after the Jewish people had returned from exile, after the Persian king had, had sent them back, which means that it was also written long after the life of the historical Jonah. We hear about Jonah in one of the books of history, um, I forget exactly which one. Um, I think it's Kings, but I can't remember. But we, he's mentioned there in much more detail. And so we believe Jonah probably really existed. But at this point, the, the author of, of the book of Jonah is writing this as kind of um, looking back into times long gone. Almost, almost a once upon a time kind of story. And this is also backed up by the language used, which is much later than when Jonah lived, and also by um, uh, anachronisms, by, you know, mistakes regarding um, history and geography uh, in, the, in the text. Uh, for example, uh, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, and the author seems to think of Nineveh as being the capital of Assyria, which it was for a long time. But during the life of Jonah, it actually wasn't the capital of Assyria. And so that's, that's where we can see that this book is probably, be, probably being written later. Um, so the, the book is structured as a didactic narrative, meaning a teaching story. It's a story designed to teach a lesson, um, and it's aimed at the author's contemporaries. So it's aimed at, at the Jewish people living at the time that the author is writing, which is, again, um, really late in the Old Testament uh, uh, writings, um, right, right before kind of when the Old Testament was we, we, near the end of, of when they wrote the, the books that we consider to be part of the Old Testament, um, after the, the Jewish people had returned from exile and were rebuilding um, Judah. So what is this story that it tells? Well, it, it tells the story of Jonah, a prophet. And uh, as I've mentioned, Jonah is mentioned in other books, kind of acting in the, the way we expect prophets to act, um, going out and, and telling uh, the kings of, of Israel and Judah that their, their you know, wicked ways are going to lead to their destruction and so on. But in this book, it's not the kings of Israel or Judah that God sends Jonah to preach to. It is Nineveh, Nineveh being the capital, uh, in the author's mind, of Assyria, and Assyria being one of Judah's enemies, one of one of the uh, uh, you know kind of powerful nations uh, of the time who will later come and and attack and war on on Judah, and so to Jonah, it seems that that Jonah doesn't want to do this. He doesn't, he doesn't want to go preach and and save the uh, the enemies of Judah. He so he runs. Instead of going to Nineveh, he goes to Tarshish, which is 
literally in the opposite direction. Tarshish um, it was a, a small town in along the Iberian coastline in Spain. And so he, he runs. He, he goes and he tries to, to find a boat. Um, and uh, he finds a boat. So he's, he talks about... Then there's this, there's this language of going down. So he goes down to the to the port city. He finds a boat. He goes down on onto the boat. Then he goes down into the bow, bowels of the boat. And then later, when he he goes down into the sea, and then he's he's eaten by the fish, and he goes down into the bowels of the fish, and then he has his prayer, and he's down at the the base of the mountains under the water. So it's so he, there's all of this imagery of going down and down and further and further and further until literally he's at rock bottom. So back to the story, he he finds a boat, hoping to make it, you know, away from God, somewhere where he can hide from God. And yet, when he gets on the boat and he's on he's on the ocean, he's on, he's on this boat that is crewed by apparently a, a very international crew with a bunch of different gods, because there's a storm and the boat is is the storm is so bad that the boat might sink or break apart. It's so bad that the the merchants that that he's hitched a ride with start throwing their wares overboard because it's you know it's either get rid of the stuff and lighten the boat or or lose their own lives. And they start praying to all their various gods to help them. And then they notice that Jonah's not there and they go wake him up to figure out why he's sleeping through all of this. And they ask him uh, who he is and they they throw lots to see who's at fault. And this throwing of lots or this casting of lots was a really common way of discerning um, God's intentions in this time, right? It's seen as a way of, of discerning God's intentions. And and it turns out that it's Jonah's fault. So they ask Jonah, who are you and where are you from and what's going on? And they quickly realize that Jonah's trying to run from God and that God is causing the storm. And so they ask Jonah, since none of them know the God of the Israels, of the Israelites, they they ask Jonah, what do we do? And Jonah, realizing that that his own selfishness is causing this problem, causing the storm, he says, just throw me overboard. Throw me overboard and the seas will return to normal. He doesn't say, take me to Nineveh so that I can do what I'm supposed to do. He doesn't he doesn't want to go back and do the thing that he's that God's asked him to do. He's so disgusted about the idea of preaching to Nineveh that he's like, you know what? Just throw me overboard and I'm gonna drown and that'll solve all of our problems. It would just be better if I was dead. But they don't want to, because they're good people and they don't wanna they don't wanna unnecessarily cause this man's death who's just going with them. And so they try to get to shore. They try to, to get to shore, to dry land, but they just can't do it. The the storm is just too powerful. They can't get to dry land. So finally, they pray to God and they say, Forgive us, you know, please forgive us. Don't please don't hold us accountable for this man's life because, you know, it's your storm is the reason why we're doing this. And then they, they toss him overboard into the ocean, into the waters. And as soon as they do, the waters calm down and the boat's able to continue. No problem. And this moves the 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 sailors so much that they, they praise and worship God um, because of it. But Jonah doesn't drown. Instead, God sends a big fish. And this is often translated, I think, in the King James as a whale. My other translation is a whale. But but the, the text just says a big fish. Um, you know, we're we're firmly in the in the realm of of um fairy tales and legends here. I mean this is this is 
you know, this isn't a, a real, this isn't a real fish. This is a story being told much later about an early, where they've chosen an earlier person as a subject of the story, but this is not a historical narrative. And so a big fish swallows Jonah and he goes down into the depths of the fish and he spends three days there down in the ocean inside this fish. And finally, he has literally hit rock bottom. And so he prays to God for his salvation. And he prays a, a, a thanksgiving to God and says, that it's, you know, it's not, basically it's not his own will, but God's will. And so God tells the fish to vomit him up onto the beach. And so he does. And then God comes to him again and says, okay, go to Nineveh like I told you the first time. <laughs> and this time, Jonah goes. Jonah goes to Nineveh, and we met, we don't have any narration of the actual trip. And he arrives there, and it's such a huge city that it takes three days to walk across. This is another way why we how we know that it was this was written later, because um, at the time this was written, Nineveh had been destroyed. Um, but uh, we know from archaeological evidence that Nineveh was never this big. It was never it was never a three days walk across. But in the minds of the later authors, they imagined it as this historical place. It'd be like, be like talking about Camelot or something, right? Like it's it's, it's this this amazing place that that was huge and had all these people in it, and it must have taken three days to walk across it. So, so Jonah goes in, and he walks for a day into the city, uh, and he begins to preach. And he tell all he tells them is, in forty days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Apparently, that's all he tells them. He doesn't tell them how to fix it. Doesn't give them. Doesn't tell them anything about God. He just tells them, you know what? In forty days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Um, but his preaching still convinces the people and the king to turn from their ways, to to fast, to put on mourning clothing, to to pray for for forgiveness from God, and so God forgives them. Because they do, they ask, they repent and ask for forgiveness. Um, And not in a superficial way, but in a real deep way. And so God forgives them. And that just makes Jonah so angry. Because Jonah says, this is why I didn't want to come in the first place. He says, I didn't want to come because I knew you were just going to forgive them. And, and kind of reading between the lines, these are our enemies. And they shouldn't be forgiven because they're our enemies. They should suffer. They should be made to feel God's wrath. And so he can't believe that God would actually forgive them. And so he goes and sets up camp next to the city, waiting for God's wrath to come upon the city. But it doesn't come. And instead, God creates a bush that grows up over where he's sitting to provide him with with shade and and um, to keep him out of the wind and the sun, and he quite loves this. And then God sends a worm the next day, sends a, you know an insect to eat the bush and destroy it so that it dies. And when the bush dies and goes away, then then Jonah is in the sun and the in the blistering wind coming off the the desert like he's you know it's it's horrible and he says god you might as well just kill me it's better for me to die than to live through it like this and then we get kind of the focus of the story god says you know you care so much about this bush even though 
You didn't grow it. You didn't plant it. You had nothing to do with it. It just appeared. And you had nothing to do with its demise. But you're you're so angry that you say you might as well just die. And yet, when God is worried about Nineveh, this huge city with, you know, thousands of people and animals and, you know, and, and you know, all of this going on and is worried about them and is worried that they are going to be destroyed. That is somehow not okay to Jonah. And so he uses this pair of this, uh, the author uses this, this comparison between the bush and, and Nineveh, the city. So that's Jonah. Uh, often we, we hear only about Jonah and the whale um, as this kind of, again, kind of fairy tale storyline, but not about the fact that Jonah, that the, the real point of the book is that Jonah is, is uh, resisting God's will throughout the entire book. And the readings for today, that if we hadn't read the whole thing, we would have missed this entire bit about Jonah being angry that God is merciful to Nineveh, which is, it would have just ended with, and God was merciful and didn't, didn't destroy them, which is a great lesson in God's mercy, but misses the whole point of the book, I think. The Bible is full of narrative. It is a narrative. As a, as a whole, it's a narrative. It's a, it's a story of, of God and God's interaction with people leading up to the story of Jesus Christ and how God uh, wishes to, to bring everyone into reconciliation with God and how Jesus is able to, to overcome the evils of the world. But we have all of these characters in the story, in the narrative. And a lot of people look to these characters as role models, especially children. I remember, you know, I, I didn't go to Bible. Um, I didn't go to, to uh, Sunday school very often as a, as a child because I didn't attend church until I was older, but I would go with my friends to, to, to Sunday schools and, and things. And I, and I remember, you know, you'd have a picture of Jonah and the whale on the wall, or you'd have a picture of, of, you know, Adam and Eve, or you'd have a picture of, of whoever, Moses. But the, the truth is that, you know, the, the Bible is not a children's story and, and it has depth and of, of character and narrative. And the, the people in it are often flawed, deeply, deeply flawed. Uh, David, who we saw last time, who is the the kind of pinnacle of, of the of the the king of Judah, that is anointed by God and is seen as being, you know, being so great in God's eyes, is also, you know, a womanizer and, and an adulterer, who who. Um, you know, does, does lots of bad things. And, you know, he, he, uh, sees a woman that he likes bathing on the, on the rooftop of a house next to him and gets her husband killed in battle so that he can, can then marry her. Uh, And it's her son, Solomon, who becomes the next King, you know, and, and Solomon has his problems. He has hundreds of wives and all this kind of thing. So, so there's, you know, the, 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 the people in the Bible are not meant to be just role models. They're meant to be complex, deeply flawed people. And here's what we see in Jonah. And what we're, what we're supposed to see in these people is not 
a story about somebody else. This is not a warning about other people. The whole point of these stories is to think about how in our lives we are these people. How in our lives are we Jonah? How, how are we behaving the same way that Jonah behaved in the story? You know, we are right now more politically divided in, in the world, not, not just in the United States, but in, across the world than we have been in a very long time. Uh, in the United States, there's this, this huge divide between what is often called the right and what is often called the left or the conservatives and the liberals or the Democrats and the Republicans or whatever labels you want to put on it. And in the UK, there's a similar issue. Um, between kind of the the nationalist um, desires of the UK to be above and and separate from the other nations in the, in Europe, versus the 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 desires of the people who want to be part of the community of Europe and and work with their neighbors. Um, in Japan, there's there's been issues like this for many years. The you know the ruling party has this nationalist streak to it. Um, where it, it sees Japan as being better than the other countries, uh, you know, wants to get rid of the of the um, the clause in the constitution that prevents building up an army, so they could, so that we can have an, an army here in Japan that can they can have a defend us or even have a strike capability and all this kind of stuff. Um, we are politically very divided. There is a lot of us versus them in the world right now. And this is what we see in the story of Jonah. And it's important because we have to realize this is not new. This is part of the human condition. This is part of our flawed nature. The flawed nature that the story of Adam and Eve points to, right? This, that some people call original sin. But I think it's better just, you know, I think original sin um, has been kind of abused into this idea of like, you get into this idea of, well, if babies aren't baptized and they go to hell because they have original sin and all this kind of stuff. But I, I tend to think of that concept that they were getting at with that as kind of our deeply flawed natures. And we see that in the story. Jonah is flawed. God tells Jonah to go, but Jonah is so selfish, so patriotic about his own country and hates their enemies so much that he runs from God rather than go and preach the good news of God to those to those enemies. Even though there's nowhere to run, he runs. He runs. He thinks, maybe if I go to the farthest outskirts of the world, God will lose me or will forget me or will not see me. Or maybe he thinks of God as being regional to, to the land of Judah. And if he escapes, then then God won't have dominion over him anymore. But whatever the reason, he runs. And yet, throughout the story, it's not him, but it's the, the, the non-Jewish people he interacts with who really show God's love. The sailors don't want to throw him overboard. Even after he tells them just to throw him overboard, they're like, no, we can't do that. You know, the sailors pray to God, please, you know, let us, you know, don't, don't put this put this man's blood on our on our hands. Uh, when he arrives in Nineveh, the people of Nineveh immediately realize their their wrong ways, and they immediately start start mourning and and everything and and trying to trying to make amends. Whereas Jonah has been 
defiant the whole time. Even when he goes to Nineveh, it's only because he, he's kind of being forced to, right? Like God has said, no, like, really, you're going to go do this. Um, and, you know, even if you try to kill yourself, I'm going to prevent you from doing that so you can go do this kind of thing. I mean, just, you know, he's like, fine, and he goes, but he's angry about it the whole time. This is just part of the human condition. It's part of our of our nature to to build walls between us and other people, which starts in our family units, and then it grows into our communities, and then it grows into our nations. Uh, this is one of the interesting things about the Japanese language is that actually this is built into the Japanese language. So when you speak, your speech patterns change depending on whether the person you're talking to is part of the in-group that you're speaking from. So, you know, when you talk to people in your community, you, you talk to them differently than you do your family members. And when you talk to people um, at your job, you talk to them differently than you do at your, in your community. And when you talk to people on the street, you talk to them differently than all of those groups because they're in different social circles. And there's different levels of us versus them. And, I, and we have this in the U.S. in the same way. But God asks us to kind of rise above this, to rise above our own selfishness and our own short-sighted nationalism, this idea that somehow this nation that we have made, that, that human beings have created, is better than all of the other nations of the earth. We're asked to rise above that and see that rather we are all created in God's image, even those that we disagree with, even those who we hate are also children of God. And God calls us to take care of those who are the most vulnerable in our society and open our hearts to those that are different from us. And it's difficult. It goes against our nature. Our world needs healing. Our respective nations need healing. We need to come together. We need to find common ground. We need to stop seeing one another as enemies to be defeated. At the same time, we need to hold one another accountable. We can't just let it go. We have to embrace God's justice we have to embrace the community of all humankind. We have to accept that others are made in God's image just as we are. That includes the LGBTQ plus community. That includes people of other faith groups, Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, Jews, Buddhists, Wiccans. That includes people of opposing political ideologies. Includes Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians. Includes communists. Includes socialists. Includes capitalists. God has called us to be a co-creator in this healing of our world that is so desperately needed. But, like Jonah, 
the call can seem overwhelming to us and we can run from it. We can hide in our nationalism. We can hide in our bubbles, in our social circles, in our echo chambers. Or we can embrace the call. We can realize that running from God is only an illusion, only a temporary state of being. There is nowhere to run. (laughs) God will eventually find you. God will eventually convince you to rid yourself of your selfishness, to rid yourself of this us versus them mentality, even if it takes eons and eons. That's the core of our belief as universalists, right? I invite you to embrace God's call for healing. I invite you to embrace God's call for a radical healing, a radical inclusion, God's call for deep, active listening to those who disagree, and God's call to hold one another accountable, not just to nod and say, okay, but to really engage and discuss issues when you can. And it's difficult. It's really difficult. And you're not always going to succeed. And sometimes you're going to be at a dinner table with your family at Thanksgiving and you're going to say, you know, I just don't want to talk about this today. And that's okay. Don't feel like you failed if you can't do this. But in whatever small capacity you can, try to embrace this call. Even if that's just talking with one relative or one person on Facebook, (laughs) whatever it might be. Embrace God's call to heal the world. Amen.